Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not does them and teaches them with called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin and the flesh, and in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Uh, Once again, from a minute or two ago, uh, my name is Derek, and I'm just repeating the thing that I printed because I didn't realize I was going to do that other thing. Uh, But um, it is really good to be here with you all, uh, to preach out of God's word. It's a great privilege to partner with folks, and in order to, in a sense, share in the partnering, to share out of God's word. Today, we're going to be camping out in those two texts, but primarily, uh, I'm going to be taking the first text that we just read out of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to jump right in. Uh, And the way I like to set that up is just recognizing what the sermon is. Many of you have read it, maybe thought about it, or maybe you haven't. I know where you're coming from. But the Sermon on the Mount is essentially, it's Jesus' campaign stump speech for the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus has come preaching about the inbreaking kingdom of God, and and the idea is that that, through Jesus' ministry and work, God is reasserting his public, visible kingship in the world. God's always been king in the world, but there's a sense in which the world is broken by sin, and so oftentimes it looks like he's not king. There are other kingdoms at work. There's a kingdom of darkness, and what's happening is that Jesus, in his ministry, is reasserting the public coming of God's kingdom, and what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is he's giving you a vision of what that looks like, right? What, what is it like to live in the world as if God was king, right? And so the, the Beatitudes, if you think about the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are sort of like all the blessed statements, blessed are the, blessed are the, uh, are the poor in the kingdom of God. They're almost like the campaign slogans, right? In the kingdom of God, the poor will be blessed. In the kingdom of God, the spiritual fools will be blessed. And so this is kind of a vision of what God's kingdom looks like and will look like because of what Jesus is doing. In the the passage right before ours, Jesus lays out some key images of what his vision for his people, his kingdom people will look like. They are to be salt, 
They are to be lights. They are to be lamps. Jesus tells people that in the kingdom of God, his vision is that the people of God, the people who call God king through Jesus, are a people who show the world what God's like. They are a light. All right, we're doing this. Okay. Um, they are a light shining in the darkness, a city on a hill whose life is one that points people to what God is like. So in the kingdom of God, people who join in the kingdom of God will live lives that show the world what God is like. Now, how is that supposed to happen? Today, what I want to do in this passage is look, is, is start to look in Jesus' answer to that question and, and maybe lay down some important theological distinctions that can keep us from running aground on some spiritual shoals. In order to get into that, though, I want us to first pray and ask the Lord for strength because in this power, this is a powerful passage. And if you internalize this, if you drill in with me and begin to grasp what it reveals to us about what Jesus does for us, this can illuminate uh, not just a lot for us intellectually, but spiritually and emotionally and, and just our whole spiritual lives. So um, please bow your heads and pray with me, and we're going to get into this and, and, and ask God to help us with that. God, you are king. You are sovereign. You rule. You reign. And we ask you right now that by your royal word, uh, you would reign in us. That your spirit would make it effective in us. That you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what it is that you have to say. And you would not just, it would not just be words that, that speak to us as as knowledge kind of floating out there in the ether, but it would actually penetrate deep down into our hearts and transform us. God, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so I don't know about you guys, but back in the day, I used to find Google Maps tricky. So uh, this is, you know, early 2000s, Google Maps is on your phone. It's gotten a lot better. Google, if you're listening, um, it's gotten a lot better. But back in the day, you know, when you were, we were going on a freeway, and especially in LA, you know, because you'll have like 18 interchanges at once, you'd be driving like, okay, now go to the left. Okay, now go to the right. And then and it'll tell you all the different, um, you know, merge left, now merge right, and now do the up do you loop to do around in the, in the roller coaster. And then you'd miss your turn by like three turns or something like that. And because you'd have these really tricky interchanges where you did have to stay to the left and then you go to the right. It was tricky. It was tricky. Um, I bring that up just because uh, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is trying to cut off some wrong turns uh, and some very sharp, sharp forks that you and I can get confused by when it comes to the issue of the law, obedience, and good works in the Christian life. Right? What I want to do in this passage is break down this passage under three headings in order to get into that more clearly. Not abolish, to fulfill, and righteousness greater than the scribes, which is printed in your bulletin. But I want to get into that by, by getting into the section where he opens up, uh, Jesus opens up our section, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And right off the bat, we have some questions. First, what are the law and the prophets? Well, the Law and the Prophets are a phrase that kind of basically denotes the whole Old Testament, or the Tanakh, including the storyline of God's dealings with God's people, right? So, so it starts out with God, um, like, 
you know, calling a guy named Abram, giving him a covenant, and then setting his descendants free hundreds of years later from, from their slavery to Egypt and bringing them into a promised land, and then giving them a law, a covenant. And this covenant with the Ten Commandments and everything around it was meant to be a law that was to govern their life, almost like marriage vows. Here is what it's like to live with God. Here, here's what's involved in that relationship. And so, God saves his people out of slavery into this covenant relationship, and they're supposed to live in this relationship. And, and, and then from there, that's the law, from there the prophets are all the stories and all the prophecies that deal with Israel basically failing to keep that law and, and being called to faithfulness into that law. And so, so when Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, don't think I've come to abolish what has come before. Right? Now, why might people think he came to abolish that? Well, because of Jesus' way of doing things. Right? First, he comes preaching this radical message about the kingdom of God. And second, he, he initially opens up the sermon, and we didn't read this passage, but it opens up the sermon by, uh, Jesus opens up the sermon by going up on a mountain. And scholars will point out that there's another time that's very important in the scriptures when somebody goes up on a mount and gives a long speech or a law, and, and that would be Moses up on Sinai. And what we have here is Jesus sort of assuming this picture, this role as a new Moses giving uh, something like what could be taken to be a new law, in which case people might think that this one who's coming to give a new law and speaks as one with authority, which is a constant refrain in this gospel, Jesus speaks as one with authority. Jesus doesn't just, like, quote other people. Jesus quotes himself as the authoritative one. People might think that what Jesus is doing is pitting himself against the old law, pitting himself against the old covenant. But right here, what Jesus is doing is he is clearly and absolutely rejecting that idea. And in, he says, not a jot or a tittle of the law, not, not, a, not a cross on the T or not a dot on the I will pass away from the law because of what he's doing. Creation will pass away before Jesus abolishes the law. And right off the bat, what Jesus does he, is he rules out two or three errors that have historically crept in when Christians have tried to think about the relationship between uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament, or Christians and the Old Testament law. One very, one very uh, prominent error in the first few centuries I'm going to kind of deal with quickly is one called Marcionitism. And just in a nutshell, uh, people have tried to do this big, massive distinction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. So people are like, you know, hey, this Old Testament God is mean and angry, and he punishes, and Jesus came, and he's gracious, and he's loving, and, and they kind of pit this radical split between the two to the point where we're, they'll actually, they actually said, we're dealing with two different gods, right? You've got the Old Testament God, and then there's the God of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ came to save us out of the world of the Old Testament God, and it's this, it was a radical error, and right here we have Jesus saying, no, actually, the, the, the law is good. Uh, you know, he, he's affirming the God of the Old Testament as the creator, as his father. And this is, this is I mean, Paul talks about the laws valid and holy. And so, so, so right off the bat, that's out the door. Second error, uh, very quickly in affirming the law is good, he cuts off one avenue of uh, anti-Semitism that's cropped up over the years. And I'll just mention this, which is to treat the law, the Old Testament law, as basically, it's, it's true, but it's, it's really harsh. 
and and they're they're kind of violent and 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 really um, it's like a not as good part of the Bible. And so uh, we're Christians now. We've moved beyond that, and 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 as Christians, we move beyond that like that that Jewish part of the Bible. I mean, it's part of the Bible, but we kind of put up with it. And 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 this has turned into a critique where sometimes I've said, well, we're Christians. We move beyond that. We've also moved beyond those Jews, and it turns into a line of, of anti-Semitism. And the reality is Christianity has no place for that. It has no place for that. Jesus is the Messiah we worship as Christians, absolutely affirms the Old Testament and closes off that avenue of disrespect, even though we read the Old Testament differently, right? So again, that's another error that we're going to quickly put to the side. Now, those two errors are not actually the focus, what I want to focus on here. And the error I want to focus on here, and and I think it's the error that um, most of us wish he was making, uh, is is that of antinomianism. Now, what is antinomianism, and why are we all secret fans of it? Okay. Antinomianism comes from the word uh, just antinomos, or Greek word law, anti-lawism. And there are a couple of different ways of thinking about anti-lawism, but the most common is perhaps to think of it as the inverse of what we call legalism. So I'm just giving you a bunch of words right now, and, and you're all happy about the definitions. But legalism, I think, is one of the best ways to understand antinomianism by, by reverse. Legalism can look a lot of different ways, but it often looks like viewing your salvation or God's love or approval as tied directly to your obedience to God's law. Right? Because it's focused on obedience, it tends to add to God's law arbitrary extras, fixated on details to the point that it actually misses the point of the law, right? Antinomianism can also take a lot of forms, but often what happens is coming to the view, is coming to our view that that our works, our obedience, and our way of living doesn't really matter at all because now we've been justified by faith in Jesus. Now, these two seem like opposites, right? The law is everything and the law is nothing, but in fact... Scottish uh, Scottish theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson points out these two are really more like two sides of the same coin, right? Both make the same mistake of thinking about obedience and God wrongly. God's laws, on, on the view of both of these views, God's laws are arbitrary rules that are there to keep us from, get, from doing what we really want to do, right? God's laws are arbitrary rules that just get in the way of us doing what we want. If you keep them, there's a prize, and if you break them, you get punished. The deal is this. The legalist uh, takes that view and just tries to keep them and hope it plays out, right? But when you have that view, you're sort of set up to be an antinomian eventually, right? At some point, when the rush of righteous, self-righteousness wears off or the burden of guilt or the weight gets to be too much, or the disappointment when your type A, really scrupulous obedience doesn't pay out, there's a shift that comes, right? So, so you start out as a legalist. You take the deal. think I'm going to get this right, and then it doesn't go well. And then you slip into antinomianism, right? Maybe it's the angry, you know what, screw it. God's holding out on me anyway, so who cares what he thinks? I'm just going to binge type of, 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 of ditching out. Or, or maybe it's the relieved one, right, that takes justification in the view that, well, you know what? God really does save by grace, uh, so who cares what I do? Or, or if I can't get in trouble, why obey? Or, or you know what? I know God loves me, uh, therefore he couldn't, 
He couldn't possibly want me to give this relationship up just, you know, just because we can't keep our hands to ourselves or just because uh, this is not the person I'm married to or just because this person's the wrong sex or, or whatever it is. He wouldn't judge me for that. Jesus is loving and kind and merciful, and this would just be too hard for him to ask of me. Right? Ferguson says that both of these approaches, the law is everything and the law is nothing, make the mistake of separating God's law from God's loving character. And this is the fundamental point here. His command from his good purposes. Right? Both of these views forget that God is good. He's not arbitrary. He's not mean. So his laws are good. They're not just right. They're actually good for us. They're meant to bless us, to help us live in relationship with him and with each other. And so obeying them is not about buying God off. Obeying them is is about living with God as he intended us to live. And in this case, it's also intended for us to, to live in the world in a way that demonstrates what life in the world with God is like. And that's what's always been true. This is why, this is part of why God saved Israel out of Egypt. When God saved Israel out of Egypt and he brings them to Sinai and he gives them a law, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the whole point is the world is going to look at you, Israel, and see what life with me is like and thereby see what I'm like. Right? Israel's supposed to live in such a way that it's, it's not about Israel buying God off. It's about Israel living this like divine life with God and the world seeing that. Good works, righteousness, they were always supposed to be a salt, always supposed to be a light, always supposed to be a city on the hill. The thing is, though, we're sort of stuck in this bind in that The law is, when it comes to keeping it, the law is both inevitable and unfulfillable. What do I mean by that? Many of of us have this seesaw pattern in our lives, like morally dieting and binging. We we try these weird crash diets to help us gain control of our waistlines, and we white-knuckle it. But the thing is, we, we, we we actually don't like broccoli, and we really love bread. And so uh, we set ourselves up to crash really hard. You know, we're, 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 we're doing the diet, we're doing things, and then Thanksgiving hits, pie's giving, and you just go ham, on ham at Thanksgiving. And, and then, then, then you go, there's turkey, and you're like, well, I already had some of that. So, like, that's, there's three pies there. And then also, and it's, oh, it's late, we're going to go to bed, I already ate a lot, but there's a little bit of mashed potatoes, and it would be a shame to have to break out another piece of Tupperware to put more in. And so you just, you go, you go nuts, and then you wake up Monday morning, and you think, oh, my gosh, there's, there's no food left in the house. There's no food on earth. I ate it all. And so you're like, I, I got to start. I got to start over. I got to pick a new crash. I, I got to go paleo now. I got to white knuckle it and, and get this thing under control. And so we, we, we. We feel some guilt, we feel some shame, and we move on to the next system of restraint. And for some of us, it's, it's not food. Some of us, it is food, but some of us, it's not food. It's, it's porn, or it's painkillers, or it's alcohol, or it's workaholism, or, or I don't know what it is, right? And, and we, we, we binge, and we, we, we purge, all, all that kind of stuff. And because many of us have a legalistic view of God's commands, this makes us hate the law because we suck at fulfilling it. 
and it gets in the way of so much of what our hearts actually want, but then we jump back on to some legalistic approach towards obedience out of fear or the recognition that the consequences of us not getting this in check are harsh, so we moderate for a while, right? As an example, campus culture went wild in the 60s. When the universities rejected the, the, the principle of in loco parentis, you actually have to, like, I don't know, manage students and, you know, as if, as if we should morally educate and govern them. And then on comes free love, on comes hookup culture, and, and everything goes on, which basically set up, set the stage for rape culture and a whole lot of emotionally wounded and broken people. And so now, instead of returning to older norms that recognize the good patterns of restraint and enjoying sex within marriage and all that sort of thing, we set up all these other legalistic guardrails uh, with every student having to go through the equivalent of HR seminars on sex and consent and all that kind of stuff before they set on campus and we set them loose and with all the alcohol and none of the restraint and all that kind of stuff and just hope that all of these new patterns, all of these new laws, all of these new principles will somehow get it all in check again. And the point is, we know that full-on antinomianism doesn't work. It damages people, but we don't want the actual good laws, the actual life that God intends for us in the law. And so, so we have this love-hate relationship with this. We have this seesaw. We know we need it, but we're bad at keeping it, and so we fear it. How then is what Jesus says here not just a setup for the opposite error of legalism, though? Right? Whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How, how does he not just setting us up there? Here's where we come to this little word Jesus uses that's so important. He says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? I think there are at least three levels or three dimensions to Jesus' fulfilling of the law that are really important for us to see and are really actually the foundation for our hope off of the seesaw of legalism and antinomianism. What are they? Well, the, f the first level is that Jesus actually just fulfills it by obeying it, right? He does what the law requires. Several times he testifies to his own sinlessness and he, and he says, who of you will accuse me of sin? Jesus actually just keeps the law. He observes the Torah. Second, and this builds on it, he, he comes to fulfill it by clarifying it, drawing it out in his role as the authoritative teacher of Israel, right? Jesus in the rest of the chapter is going to outline and deepen our understanding of the law with a series of antitheses, these sayings that say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what you have to understand, Jesus is, again, not rejecting the law. He just said, I'm not rejecting the law. What he's doing is he's clarifying what the law always meant. Right? So you have heard it said, and this is the point of what that command was always about. And so there's a sense in which Jesus, in his teaching and in the way he lives out his teaching is in his life, his love of God, his love of neighbor, his feeding the poor, his living sacrificially for others, his healings, his forgiveness, his mercy, his doing everything for the glory of God, his whole life is a deeper teaching of the law. And in that sense, again, he fulfills it. And this leads to the third sense. He is the one who keeps it. And he's not just anybody, right? He's not just a great teacher. He is 
the Son. He's the Son of God. And this is, this is what Romans 8, I, I, had, I had us go and read, I, di- I, I violated one of the rules. You're not supposed to teach Romans and Matthew at the same time. But, but here in Romans 8, it talks about Jesus being the Son who took on the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he came, he became like one of us, and a specifically Jewish one of us, submitting to the law in order to fulfill it. But Jesus didn't just submit to the law, parts of the law, right? But really the whole story of the law, right? Because the law and the prophets, that testif- they testified that one day God was going to save the world. And he was going to put right what our first parents put wrong in the garden. When Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were the first people who broke the law when they legalistically decided to separate God's character from God's law. Instead of seeing God's law as flowing from a good good God, they saw it as holding out, and so they broke the law, violated it, and pushed us all into, uh, into this life of legalism and antinomianism. And so after that, there was a promise that there was going to be one who's going to come and save. And the whole history of Israel was God's plan to put everything right that had been put wrong. All the stories with Abraham and Moses and the Exodus and King David and the prophets, they're all pointing to this grand fulfillment that we actually get in the life of Jesus, right? That's what we see in his life and death and resurrection. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Adam and Eve that one day a redeemer would come and crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse. In Jesus, we get the fulfillment of the promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring, in Jesus, we've already seen a greater Moses who, who gives a greater law, but he also is one who leads a greater exodus, not out of, out of physical slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery to sin and death and the devil, out of our guilt and out of our shame. In Jesus, we get a better David, an anointed king, a Messiah, a man after God's own heart, but without sin. The King David should have been. And as this Messiah, as this anointed one, he comes as the one who has the power to represent his people and keep God's promises, both to punish sin and to save sinners. And this is where we get back to that passage in Romans. The law is good, but when sinners fail to keep it, the law condemns. You and I know this. We know this in our hearts, even if we've never read the law. We know deep in our hearts the condemnation that comes when we fail to even live up to our own standards. But Jesus, he is without sin. He keeps the law perfectly and it is deserving of no punishment. And so when he comes, he offers himself up as a sacrifice. A sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that covers these things. And in that, he, he satisfies the demands of the law. That the sin of the people must be condemned, that God must treat sin as it deserves, that he must name it as the evil that it is. And that's what he suffers in the cross. Well, at the same time, through that, the law actually also promises God's mercy and God's grace. And that's what the whole sacrificial system was about. In his death, he satisfies the demand of the law that condemns sin, but in his death... And life and resurrection, he brings about the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of the God who promises these things towards sinners. This is why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And in doing so, he fulfills the law and the prophets in a way that absolutely no one could do before or after. There is something absolutely transcendently unique about what Jesus does here with respect to the law. He keeps the, way, he keeps the law in the way that none of us can. This is why, and, and just off notes here, this is why you and I, uh, we get to be uh, justified. We get to be made right with God by faith. So th- th- at the heart of the gospel is this idea that when you put your faith in Jesus, you're united with him such that what he does counts for you. And what is said about him is said about you. So when he suffers the judgment of sin and you're united with him, you've suffered that judgment. Your sin is gone. And when he is declared righteous and when he is declared holy and when he is declared, he is shown to be all these things, that is now true of you. And you stand righteous before God, holy before God because you're in Jesus. He fulfills the law for you. He fulfills the law for you who have broken it in a million different ways. Now, I sort of lied there, though, when I said that there are three ways that Jesus fulfills the law. There's actually a fourth, and it builds specifically on this understanding that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves is that he actually fulfills it, not just by doing it outside of us, but by fulfilling it within us. And this brings me to the last sub-point, the the point about uh, righteousness greater than the scribes or the Pharisees. See, when you you read that, based on all that I've said, we, we might get a little confused, right? Not just because we have questions about how the Old Testament applies to, 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 to Christians. And if you do, I would say look up the Westminster Confession this afternoon, chapter 19. It's got a good section on that. But, but because we're worried about falling back into the antinomian and, and legalist trap, right? Um, how does this not just a setup for us thinking that we're going to try and keep the law harder now that Jesus has saved us because he says we're supposed to actually have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And this would have been shocking because the scribes and the Pharisees were the law keepers, right? They loved the law. They made extra laws to make sure they didn't keep the law that was written down. What Jesus says he came to actually do is bring about the possibility of a greater and deeper obedience and righteousness, the ability to obey God's law from the heart, how can that be? How does Jesus enable us to obey in a way that doesn't put us back on the seesaw of moral binging and dieting? Two fundamental ways. He shows you the heart of the Father, and he gives you the gift of the Spirit. So first, when you begin to see that Jesus is the expression of God's fatherly heart, when you see that the Father is the one who sent him, to save you, to love you, to die in your place, this begins to take you off that seesaw because what you begin to see is you begin to see the loving character of your God. He's the one, the one who who laid down these laws is also the one who sent Jesus to save you. His love is good. He is merciful. He is kind. He has good purpose for you, and he proved it in Jesus, in which case... I can begin to trust what he says is right for me. 
I can begin to see his heart and then see his heart reflected in his laws. And so that begins to transform me and help me obey from the heart. But the second thing, and this is possibly even more powerful, is that uh, Jesus doesn't just show us something outside of us, but he brings about a change within us by the Spirit. There are these very important prophecies in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, and they speak about this institution of a new covenant. A time when God will renew his people from the inside out. He 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 will cut out their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, and he will give them his own spirit. So they will actually obey God's statutes from the heart because it's, it's, like, the, it's like the statutes were written on it. Um, can you hear me? In the back? I will yell. Okay, so here's the thing. What, Rome, what Paul says in Romans 8 is that this is what's happened in Jesus. The Spirit has been poured out on us because of what Jesus has done. And so now the spirit is at work in you. He says, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right? And I, we could go back and forth about how exactly that works out. But the way the parallel works is that in verse 7 it talks about the difference between the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. And the mindset on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. But the implication is that the mindset on the spirit can And the joy is that Jesus has given us a spirit that takes our mind. We no longer have a fleshly mind. He sets it on God. And he basically transforms us from the inside out so that we begin to obey from the heart. He he shows us the Father outside of us, and he gives us the spirit within us. And so now, it's Jesus' own spirit. The spirit by which Jesus obeyed. The spirit by which Jesus performed miracles. The the spirit by which Jesus gave himself in love for others. That spirit is at work in you, enabling you to now walk a new holy life that you never could have walked on your own. And it's in this way that Jesus keeps the law outside of us and within us and transforms us as a Christian community into a community that is salt and light and a city on a hill. When the Spirit's at work in you and you start living out, out of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the awesomeness of God at work in you, when you, we become a community that's no longer consumed by lust, no longer consumed by anger or by hypocrisy or by materialism, Jesus' obedience enables us to become a community that looks radically different. It's beautiful that when neighbors see us, see our lives of forgiveness, see our lives of generosity, see our lives that have been transformed, that looks beautiful. That looks like a light. And when they see not a hint of self-righteousness or pride about it, That's a city on a hill. That is a truly divine life. And that is what Jesus has come to bring about in our hearts and our minds and our souls and really the whole of our community as the church. And that, that is good news worth lifting our voices to praise him for.
which is what we will do in a minute. But please bow your heads and pray with me now. Holy Father, you are merciful and kind and generous. You're beautiful. You're good. And you've invited us to share that life and you've brought about our sharing in that life by the work of your Son and your Spirit. So we ask you right now that you would empower us by your Spirit to lift our voices and praise you in acknowledgement of what you've done. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.